0: We are in the book of Philippians, which is a New Testament book written by Paul and Timothy, and they are writing a letter from prison to the believers in the city of Philippi. And as they write this letter, there's a number of things that really stand out. First of all, they are laser-focused in seeing the gospel, meaning the Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, seeing the news about that advance. And wherever they are, and in this case it's in prison, And whatever they're doing, they are solely focused on seeing other people encounter Jesus' grace. And this speaks then to how they have encountered the gospel. These men see the gospel as the best news in the world. It has changed their lives. In many ways, made their lives harder, but also, they would say, better as well. They have seen the power of Jesus, His kindness and His goodness. And through all of this, They have been radically changed. Their lives are no longer the same. They are now thankful individuals. Unceasingly thankful. They are willing to suffer for Jesus. To choose suffering. They become servants of Jesus. Followers of Him willing to lay down their lives for Him. And this is why they consider being with Jesus far better than anything that this world has to offer. Why they can make such strong statements like, to die is gain. It's a crazy thought. But they are saying, to die is gain. For them better. But all of this flows from what we talked about last week. The picture of Jesus in chapter 2. Jesus is God who became a servant. The one who created everything in this world became nothing. The highly exalted one humbled himself to a life and death that was filled with mockery and suffering. The king became a servant. Jesus is the servant king. And this picture of Jesus is vital for us to see, to understand as we venture into the verses we're looking at today. We must see Jesus as the servant king. So let's read these verses and then we'll we'll flesh some of this out. Philippians 2, going to be in verses 12 through 18 this morning. Therefore, my beloved... as a drink offering upon the, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. God, I pray that these words would instruct us in these moments, but also in the courses of our week, in the days that follow. I pray that you would speak truth to us, that we would be able to see Jesus for who he is. And as we do that, we would be able to work out our salvation. And in all of this, I pray that we would be people marked by joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so this section begins with, therefore which is connecting what we just talked about in the picture we got last week. It's connecting Jesus as the servant king with everything that is then going to follow after this. So there's one statement I really want to hone in on here in verses 12 and 13, but before we get to that, let's note again Paul's affection for these people. He calls them my beloved. This is not a way that we oftentimes talk. To one another, even as spouses, right? We We oftentimes maybe don't refer to one another in such affectionate terms, but Paul is communicating that the church in Philippi they are dearly loved; they are much loved by Paul, and he wants them to know it. And so, notice this: he doesn't leave it up to assumption. He again explicitly, directly communicates his positive feelings for them. I think this is really instructive for us. In our own relationships, in our own lives, it is, this is a great example for us to follow. To not just assume love, but to communicate love verbally, explicitly, in an ongoing manner. People, you, you need to hear this. Others need to hear of our love for them. Communicate that. Don't worry about being weird or awkward. Just communicate love for people. Also, this is the second time Paul makes reference to how the Philippians are living, whether Paul is there or not. And Paul is pushing against the tendency in human nature to look a certain way that is beneficial for us. He's fighting against our tendency towards hypocrisy. We are always in danger of appearing in certain ways so that we might gain an advantage in someone else's eyes or in a social situation. And Paul is saying, be the same person always. Whether he's there or not with the Philippians, be who Jesus is making you. Don't be a chameleon. Jesus warned his followers about this. He said in Luke 12, beware of hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Everything about us, whatever you work hard for people to not know about you, whatever those skeletons might be in your closet, all of it, all of it is going to be revealed. It's known already by God, but it will be revealed as well and and really, the weight of trying to cover that up, the dread of people try, or, uh, finding these things out about us is just not worth it. It will suck the life out of us for us to pretend to be something that we really are not, And ultimately it will lead us into greater sin. And so Paul's encouraging the Philippians and Jesus encourages his followers to be who you are, to be honest about it, to be free, to shine light into our hearts because he wants us to know freedom. And he wants us to know the joy that's contained within freedom. So th- this is why Jesus served. Right? Why Jesus came from that high and exalted position. He came down to us to serve us so that we would have freedom. So that we would know the joy of not living a life of fakery. But What I love about Paul here is his affirmation of the Philippians. He's saying, this is what you have done. He says, as you have always obeyed. He's saying, this is who you are. This is what you've done. But now do it all the more. And I love the order of what Paul is doing things here. He's about to give them a command. But notice what comes before the command. It's commendation. Commendation precedes the command. And this is very gospel-y. This is grace coming to us when we don't deserve it. And then what comes out of grace is obedience. But first, grace. First, the undeserved goodness. First, commendation. Then comes the command. And then Paul gives the command. This is where we're going to put our roots down a little bit here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let's first just break this statement down a little bit. So, The focal point here is what? It's salvation. Okay? So we're talking about salvation. The fact that God saves sinners from hell. He saves sinners from wrath. And yes, salvation is accomplished by God. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later. But what we read here is that the saved one has an active role in their salvation. Paul is urging the Philippians to take an active role in, his, in God's saving of them. And so this pushes against the idea of God saved me when I was six. And that's the end of the story. Or, or the idea that it doesn't matter how I live. I can just kind of do whatever I want. God has saved me. This is pushing forth the idea that there's continual growth that occurs in the life of a Christian but I think this then brings up reasonable questions for us to wrestle through. Like, what does this mean? What does this look like for us to work out our salvation? And maybe part of the reasonable questions is, you're going to say, Kevin, you talk all the time about that the Christian life is not about what we do. It's not about our works. Is this contradicting that? So, The softball answer here is to just start listing out all the things people associate with being a good Christian, right? Like prayer and Bible reading and church attendance. And maybe we get more detailed with giving money or volunteering or serving in a variety of capacities. Many people, and some of you are included in this, have a church experience where they feel like church or God is just calling them to do more. That there's always this long to-do list. And they're told not just to do that, but then to be happy about it. Put a smile on your face while you're doing it. But the reality is, for many of us, if we grew up in legalistic context, it feels like an obligation. And the joy that we are supposed to feel is actually forced joy. It's fake joy. It's not joy whatsoever. And deep down people who go through these experiences oftentimes feel fake and unhappy. Do you feel that way about the Christian life? Has this been your experience right now or at other times in your life? I think it has for most of us at some point, if not now, at some point it has been. Whenever we read commands in the Bible, I think it's important for us to pull back and ask the bigger gospel question. Gospel means good news. How is this good news? How is this working out good news for us? The good news for working out our salvation comes when we read this in context. Last week, we were given this drastic picture of Jesus. He made himself nothing. Instead, he emptied himself. He became a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, an excruciating, embarrassing death. And through all of this, he chose not to utilize the divine capacities available to him. And it was this suffering-filled experience that led him to being given the name that is above every other name. It was his servanthood that led him to being highly exalted. And all of this was happening for needy, hopeless people like you and I. This picture of sacrificial love is the good news that we must keep coming back to. See, working out our salvation is much more about understanding what Jesus has done for us than it is about what we must do for Jesus. It's much more about understanding Jesus' sacrificial love for us than it is about how are we going to love Jesus. We need to keep gazing at Jesus and seeing the astounding ways in which he has served undeserving people like us. And convince ourselves over and over through using the gospel as a mirror that we actually are undeserving. Because I think deep down many of us at times feel like we do deserve it. We do some of the the spiritual gymnastics. We jump through the spiritual hoops and we think, God kind of owes me. I do kind of deserve this a little bit. We need to convince ourselves that grace is actually this beautiful gift, that it is undeserved. Now, I do think working out our salvation is going to get to the practical aspects of the Christian life. It will move us to consider how we are spending our time and how we are Utilizing our money It will cause us to consider Reading our bible and and prayer and those things but the key to all of this is the heart behind it Is it begrudging Or is it joy-filled? Is it duty Are, are we doing these things out of duty or are we doing these things out of delight If we hate prayer Or reading the bible bores us to death, there's likely a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus. We're not understanding the gospel, grace, in the way that Jesus intends for us to understand it. And so, the key is not just to white-knuckle it, go back and work harder. It's to go back to the gospel and and ask God to reveal to us, what are we missing? Why Why is the gospel not beautiful to us? Why is grace not astounding us? Now one thing in, we see in this section of verses is tension. We're, we're being driven back to this gracious picture of Jesus. We're intended to see Jesus conveying grace in a variety of ways. But then it says we're called to do it with fear and trembling. And this is speaking to living a life of faith with an understanding of who God is. The reality that God is holy. The fact that God does hate sin. The fact that not we, but God is all-powerful. That he's wise beyond our comprehension. That he's patient and good in ways we can't conceive. See, when it talks about fear and trembling here, it's not talking about them in ways that are intended to be killjoys us they work together in this whole process to cultivate joy in our hearts and i think psalm 211 really captures this idea helpfully it says serve the lord with fear when it talks about fear here it's not talking about terror it's talking about awe and reverence we're serving the lord in light of understanding who he is he is holy and he does hate sin and he is all-powerful And then it says, and rejoice with trembling. So this trembling, again, is not terror. It's not something that's intended to drive us away from God. But to understand that the power of God, the greatness, the glory that's contained in Him should at times cause our knees to become weak, to tremble a little bit at times. But if God is just small and we can just kind of fit Him into this neat little box, we're not understanding Him for who He really is. And so the call is that we would serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Not fake smiles, but in the deepest parts of us, we would feel joy. This draw towards God while also doing that with trembling. There's a lot of mystery there for sure. But joy, in the midst of fear, and in the midst of trembling, is still in sight, is still present. Another way in which we see tension is in the statement, Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. Much ink has been spilled about who has what role in salvation. Is it me? Is it God? It seems like it's saying both of us here right ultimately god is the one who saves he is the primary worker our work then is a response to god's foundational work of salvation our work also then is empowered by god's initial work it's empowered by jesus what this does then is it makes god ultimate And it never leaves room for apathy or indifference about the gospel. It's it's keeping tension here between God's role and our role. We have to understand the sacrificial love of Jesus calls us into something. It shapes us in radical ways. See, we've got to read this really closely. What it doesn't say. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says, work out your salvation. And there is a massive difference between those two statements. If we work for our salvation, then salvation is something that we earn. Salvation is something that depends on us. And everything then becomes uncertain. We know we're fickle. We know we fail in many ways. And if salvation is dependent on us in any sense, even in a small sense, it becomes uncertain. And none of us wants that. None of us wants that. The call to work out our salvation is built on the fact that Jesus earned, purchased, accomplished, and gives salvation to us. It's all on Jesus. Salvation is a gift given to us and it cannot be taken away. Hear me. Salvation cannot be taken away. When it is given by Jesus, it cannot be taken away. Now, we're charged with working out what that means. And that's what the Christian life is about. The picture we see in Jesus as the servant king is intended to shine tons of light about what this means for us in our everyday. So, so in this, questions arise for us, right? Is God sovereign? Yes. God is sovereign. Do we have free will? Yes, we do. There's a ton of mystery here. Okay? There's a ton of mystery here. This is one thing I love about the Bible. The tension that is here, this is much more of a both and than an either or. I love the fact that we can't just say, God is sovereign, it's on Him, so I can live like hell. And I can do whatever I want. It never leaves room for that. Right? We still have a call in this as well we have meaningful responsibility within the christian life the christian life is not fatalistic but the real press here is do we believe first and foremost god is the one working in us that it is all on him do we understand how kind he is to care for us in this way god is the one who is primary that is good news And all of my good works, all of your good works, are God's kindness to us. And that he works out through us to other people as well. It's a both and. Okay, verse 13 ends then with a statement that is quite challenging. It says God is willing and working in us for his good pleasure. And I think this should jar us a little bit because our lives have been lived in a culture that tells us that we should pursue pleasure at any cost personal selfish pleasure at any cost and Paul is stating something very different and we should wonder how God's pleasure interacts with our own personal pleasure the bible is clear philippians is very clear god desires our joy god desires our joy he wants us to experience pleasure Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John in terms of abundant life or having life to the full. That's God's design and desire for us. But this is predicated on the fact that we understand life isn't intended to be about us. Life isn't intended to make much of ourselves. Life is about God and His glory. The bigness of God. Life is about seeing His name in the lights, not our own. And so it calls us to put to death those dreams that we would be something in the eyes of this world. It calls us to lay down those desires that we would get the pat on the back. That people would look at us and say, I want to be like that. It calls us to continually point people to where all glory and praise is intended to go. Jesus. And that is where our pleasure is. In Jesus. Only in Jesus. In fact, I would say, understanding this allows us to understand many of the other good gifts that he gives to us more. You will enjoy food more if you understand and see grace the grace that God gives to us in supplying, providing, and allowing us to enjoy it rather than abusing it and thinking food is the ultimate. And that's true for anything in life. When I thought basketball was a God, it almost destroyed me. And when basketball couldn't stand up for me anymore, I was devastated. But now that I can understand. Basketball is a limited gift. It's a good gift that can be used in a lot of bad ways as well. I've learned to enjoy this game in much, much greater ways. Much more so than I ever did when I thought that it had the power of a God. And this is true for everything in life. Okay, right from this discussion then about working and pleasure... Paul moves in a direction that paints a picture of how we might work out our salvation. And he says, do all things without grumbling. What we've learned already today and earlier in Philippians, when it talks about have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, if we understand this, we understand we can do all things without grumbling through Jesus. God can empower this in us. And he will. You can have this mind among you, and this can be true and present through Jesus. God is concerned with this, with us not grumbling, because he is concerned with our joy And he is concerned with our salvation. When we read grumbling, we should not merely think about how we grumble or what makes us grumble. We'll get there, but there's so much more biblically to help us with this theme of grumbling. Grumbling is a repeated theme throughout the Bible, it comes up often. Back in the Old Testament, God delivered his people, Israel, from horrific slavery in Egypt. Okay, so they're enslaved, right? We talk about the Exodus somewhat regularly here. God's people are enslaved. Life is miserable. They cry out to God. God comes to them in kindness. He delivers them from slavery. And then he leads them on this journey. Okay, Israel wanders in the desert. But as they're in the desert, God provides them with many things, okay? He provides them with food. They get tired of the food and they grumble. So God gives them different kinds of food. They still grumble. He provides them shelter, protection. and They grumble about these things, that it's not enough. But what we see throughout this journey is that God is continually providing them many good things. And what does Israel do? Over and over again, they grumble. Eventually, God got to a point that he told Israel they would not enter the promised land because of their grumbling. So the promised land was this land that God had as the destination. It was a land full of many good things, abundance, and he wanted to give them all the good gifts of this land, so he's leading them there. But because of their incessant grumbling, what we find is that they're not going to enter The promised land at least that generation of grumblers and here's the big biblical theological point that we can learn from the old testament and the story of israel is that grumblers don't enter promised lands grumblers don't enter promised lands we can know paul has this story in mind as he's writing here in philippians And and the reason we know is because he talks about this in other parts of the New Testament. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 10. It says there, Paul writes, Do not grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So when he's talking about it, some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So this is talking about a specific story in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into the details of that. But it's related to what we're talking about here with Israel's grumbling. And Paul is saying these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. These things are being written down for us so that we would learn from them, so that we would not have to go through the same things that Israel went through. This is written down to teach us here and now, today. Now, I want to be really clear. What I am not saying is, if you grumble, you lose your salvation. So please don't hear me saying that. I know every single person here grumbles. And I'm probably chief of the grumblers. Okay, we probably grumbled this morning already. But what this is getting at is a trajectory in our hearts. Is grumbling normative for you? Is there an increasing trajectory? Are you becoming more of a grumbler? Finding more things to grumble about? in your own heart and life? Or or do we see grumbling as a sin? Or is it just like one of those things, ah, I should try not to do it? Or do we understand that grumbling actually separates us from God? It breaks relationship with Him. Ultimately, grumbling indicates a lack of awareness and appreciation for God's kindness. Many of the things we grumble about are probably ways in which God is trying to show us our need for Him. (coughs) The things we grumble about are probably sin, idolatry, struggles in our own hearts in which God is trying to reveal to us so that we would turn away from that and ultimately increase our own joy. And yet, what we tend to do is to focus on that thing that we didn't get, and we grumble. And in our grumbling, we display the fact that we are not believing God is who he says he is. We're not believing his promise to work good in all things for those who love him. We're not believing that he is sovereign. We are still trying to exert control in our lives, ultimately, Grumbling is a rejection of Jesus. That's what grumbling ultimately is. A rejection of what has been given to us. It also reveals that we are more focused on small temporary circumstances. The circumstance of the cross, what it says about us, the fact that we are sinners in need of saving, as well as what the cross accomplishes for us, salvation, it says when we grumble that the circumstance of the cross is not ultimate. It's not overbearing in our lives in a good way. Paul is saying the cross and the gospel needs to be ultimate. Grumblers don't understand what Jesus has done for them. Grumblers aren't thankful for the many good gifts God has given to them. Grumblers are indicative of what it says in this verse of of living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's what sin does. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Things were twisted. We don't see God for who He is. We don't understand grace for what it is. We don't understand the gifts that He gives to us in the way He intends for us. Ultimately, God is not who He actually is. or We don't see Him for who He actually is. And so this, this should press us to consider, like, do we see Jesus' love as lavish? Or is Jesus' love for us just kind of normal? Ho-hum. Are you grateful for the immense grace extended to you? Do, do you see grace as this beautiful pearl that nothing else compares to? Do you see all of the goodness God has poured out on your life? This is why Paul is urging us to work out our salvation. That we would see Jesus for who He is, and this would have impact in our lives. It would shape us in every part of our lives. Because grace, Jesus, the Gospel, is much greater than we oftentimes realize it oftentimes just becomes another part of life, another book on the bookshelf when it's intended to be what it's all about, the whole thing. And Paul drives home this reality at the end of this section. Essentially, Paul says, if I am killed for your faith, I will rejoice, and you should rejoice with me. This is crazy. Notice what Paul's not doing. This is a man who's in prison. Been imprisoned for some time. He's not whining. He's not grumbling about prison. For sure, Paul probably has days of sadness. For sure, he misses friends that he would love to see. But he is all in on the fact that Jesus is, is still, in his current circumstance, in prison, working things for his good. He is working out his all-powerful plan. He doesn't know all the ins and outs that might occur, but he trusts. He trusts so much that he says he is able to rejoice. And I don't think Paul's just putting on a happy face here. I think in every part of who he is, he feels joy. And he's calling us to that as well. We're going to encounter hard circumstances in this life. And Paul doesn't want us to be thrown off by them. He wants us to be rooted in the gospel. Rooted in who Jesus is. Who he has has revealed himself to be for us. And in this, to be able to live lives that are marked by joy. Distinct joy. All right, two points of gospel application for us as we close here this morning. First of all, God is at work. He is the primary worker in life and salvation. In a world that seems to be hell-bent on destruction, the evidence of God is still all around us. Do you believe God is working still? That He is working, that He will work do you believe that god cares deeply about you because he does he does and he cares about our enemies as well and so the call for us in this is that we would live in a way that believes god is at work in us and around us being serious and diligent About working out what God has already worked in us. Let's consider what the cross says about us and about God. Let it radically change us, and in this, to incite and create joy in parts of our hearts where we never thought it possible. God is at work. Secondly, grumbling stinks. You don't want to grumble. I know you think you want to grumble. You don't want to grumble. You don't need to grumble. I know that sometimes we think we need to just blow off some steam. No one's started a business where you can just go and grumble. I mean, maybe someone has. I tried to Google it this week. I couldn't find it. I mean, maybe Facebook comment section of post That might be what's been created where we can go. And grumble, you don't love listening to others grumble. That's how everyone else feels about our grumbling as well. Grumbling leads to a destination we don't want to go. Grumbling does not lead us to Jesus. So let, let's use that as a mirror. When that, when that comes into our hearts, let's be aware of that. Let's fight it. Let's kill that sin of grumbling in our hearts through the power of the gospel. Let's preach the gospel, grace at ourselves. Kids, I want you to hear this especially. You can be a big part of this in your own homes. There's a tendency, parents can set bad examples with grumbling, for sure. We need to be called out on it. Kids, you're still at a much earlier age in life fight against this tendency to think life has to be about you, that you have to get everything that you want. At the end of the day, when we grumble, I have this conversation with my kids a lot, when we grumble, we're not happy. So whatever it is we think that we're fighting for, the fight is not getting us what we want. And that should be indicative. Whatever that thing is we're fighting for isn't worth the fight. Because in the moment, it's leading us to grumbling. Grace is much bit greater than grumbling. So let's put our hope there. In Jesus, in his grace, let's camp out there for the rest of our lives.